As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everybody, welcome to a Memorial Day edition of the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. If you had to work today, I hope that your commute this morning was a lot smoother than Shohei Otani's on Thursday night. Could not get across the Bay Bridge in time for the game. All sorts of controversy about BART system there and all that. But we aren't going to get into that on this podcast. This is all about your questions and Ken Rosenthal answering them in the mailbag on a rainy Memorial Day weekend. Ken, it's gross outside, but it's a good time to podcast, I guess. It's not a good moment to be living in the East, or at least the Northeast, I should say. And that's the way it's been. But hopefully Memorial Day itself is better weather for people and that they still can listen to us as well. Yeah, we record this on Sunday and uh, just a washout pretty much. The washed out Mets game on Friday night against the Braves as well. You were supposed to be on that broadcast. They did play Saturday and you were part of that one. And man, the Mets just keep winning. They put up 13 runs and the lineup did not have Pete Alonso, did not have Michael Conforto, did not have Brandon Nimmo or J.D. Davis or Jeff McNeil. But that's nothing new. They're missing Noah Syndergaard, Carlos Carrasco, all these injuries and Ken, they just keep getting it done, a three-and-a-half game lead in the NL East as we record this. It's impressive, Tim. And what's astonishing about this is that entering that game, they had 17 players on the injured list. It went to 16 once Taiwan Walker was activated. And you mentioned the opening day starters, the regulars, who were missing. There were six of them. And yet, as you mentioned, they kept it going. And we've seen this now, not just with the Mets, but with several different teams this year where – Players who they never imagined being part of their roster have not only become part of their roster, but also have contributed in meaningful ways. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Padres winning that series, sweeping it from the Cardinals at home with Brian O'Grady and John Andrioli and Patrick Kivlahan. That's when they had that COVID outbreak and a bunch of injuries as well. You're seeing the Cubs now do some Pretty special things with their injuries mounting. Eric Sogard has been in their lineup. Patrick Wisdom, Rafael Ortega, not necessarily part of the plan. Sogard, yes, but not this regularly. 
And now here are the Mets, and let's point to that Saturday night game as an example. So Billy McKinney hits a three-run homer. He was DFA'd by the Brewers, and the Brewers traded him to the Mets for a 17-year-old prospect from Venezuela that no one really has even seen. He's a guy who's been in some big trades. If you remember, he went with Addison Russell to the A's for Jeff Zamarja and Jason Hamill. Then he went to the Yankees in the Glaber Torres trade for Chapman. Then he went with Brandon Drury for Jay Happ a few years ago in that trade between the Yankees and Blue Jays. Oh, and speaking of Brandon Drury, he too hit a home run in that game. And as I was going to say on the broadcast, we never got to this, but like a number of recent Mets call-ups, it's difficult to say Drury was deserving of a promotion. He was 4 for 27 with no extra base hits in spring training. Then he batted only 192 with a 598 OPS in 59 yeah. plate appearances at AAA. And yet there he was, hitting a home run on Saturday night. And oh, let's not forget Cameron Mabin, another of the Mets' emergency additions. He came to the Mets in a cash deal with the Cubs. Yes, he went 0 for 27, but he finally got his hit on a squibbler. Saturday night. So the Mets are putting it together. And you can't win with these guys consistently. No disrespect to any of them. You need your regular players, your best players out there. But to see the Padres win that series or sweep it with the Cardinals, to see the Mets do this against the Braves, even if only for one night, it's impressive. And apparently this season, it's what teams are going to need to do because the injuries are running rampant still throughout the sport. I think the number that I saw uh, last week was that injuries are up 30% compared to 2019. And that's not including, that's no COVID or anything like that. That's just straight injuries. And Tim, it could get worse. Actually, based on what we know, it should get worse as we're going through a 162-game season coming off a 60-game season. Now, no one knows exactly why these things are happening. All of these soft tissue injuries but it stands the reason as the grind of the season continues, there are going to be additional problems. And it's a worse situation than I think anyone in the game imagined. A lot of people feared, due to the stop and start nature of last season, that there would be problems this year. But this is beyond the pale. And it's a lot of the game's biggest stars, as well as just regular major league players. And as one GM said to me last week, who's been dealing with this kind of thing, and fans of fan graphs who understand the idea of a replacement player will understand this. He said, I'm looking for below-level replacement players to replace replacement players. So that's how far his team had sunk. And that kind of is maybe the motto of the 2021 season for some clubs. So just looking for, like, if I can get to negative two war. Right. Maybe <laughs> that's negative the five. Thing is, I expect... I expected the pitchers to get hurt, right? Like, because of the, the lack of work last year. I'm just amazed by all the position players. Agreed. And a lot of it is the soft tissue stuff. The hamstrings, yeah. the obliques, the quads, the calves. And I don't know what's going on. And remember, we're in an era now of sports science where these things are starting to be more understood, better understood, I should say. And baseball is a little bit behind, say, European soccer in this regard, where they are really into this stuff and all over it. But as one executive told me a couple of weeks ago, come 10 years from now, things will be a lot different. But meanwhile, this all is continuing. Yeah, and the Mets continue to win. All right, let's move on to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. 
please leave a voicemail. If you want to get involved next week or you want to get your voice on the show, especially, we have a lot of emails this week, not as many voicemails. So please call into the hotline. It's 646-543-7072. If you do want to get us the email, it's tabaseballshow at gmail.com. We are going to start with the emails. Ken, this one comes from Brendan in Massachusetts. He says, in light of former Major League catcher Eric Kratz's recent allegations that the 2018 Rockies were using a monitor and massage gun to relay stolen signs and his insinuation that the Dodgers were up to something as well, would you expect MLB to look into these claims or may there be a sentiment within the league to move on from these types of scandals out of fear of casting doubt on league-wide integrity? Thanks and love the show. I would expect that Major League Baseball would at least reach out to Kratz and ask him if he's willing to expand and provide specifics. Now, is there a desire for the league to move on? I'm sure there is a desire for the league to move on. But if, for example, someone reported specifics to them tomorrow or if a publication reported specifics, like what we reported a couple of years ago regarding the Astros and then the Red Sox, the league would be obligated to investigate. It's not as if their heads are in the sand. It's just they need something to go on. Now, I want to address this a little bit at greater length because we frequently get questions, at least I do on Twitter. Hey, what about this team? What about that team? Why'd you pick on the Astros? Why'd you pick on the Red Sox? Well, if you go back to the original Astros story that Evan Drellick and I wrote, the first sentence of that story, and Evan wrote it, to be perfectly honest, was, there is a broad story about this era of baseball that is yet to be told. The third sentence of that story was, inside the game, there is a belief that is treated by players and staff as fact that illegal sign stealing, particularly through advanced technology, is everywhere. And then we also wrote, electronic sign stealing is not a single team issue. Now, this was all in the Astros story. We wrote about the Astros specifically in that story and then the Red Sox in later story because we had information along those lines. We had the ability We had the success in reporting out those details. Now, does that mean that other teams were not engaging in similar activity? Well, I'm not sure anyone engaged in activity quite to the length of the Astros. In fact, if that happened, I would expect we'd know that by now. But there were other teams that I shall not name that we looked into and are still looking into that we simply did not have enough evidence or documentation or whatever you want to call it to go on, to publish. This is not Twitter where we can simply throw out random allegations. If we're going to write something, we better have it. We had it with the Astros. We had it with the Red Sox. We have not had it with any of these other clubs. But as I said, that does not mean other clubs were completely innocent in this regard. And Kratz pointed to two that we did not report about. So again, I don't know that the issue is has been put to bed by Major League Baseball or even by us or anyone else. But you have to have some specifics, some actual evidence to go forward with a publication or an investigation of this nature. The one thing that stood out from this Kratz thing is, you, you know, so much was made of the trash can and banging the trash can. And then he comes out with the the massage gun against the uh, the bench in the dugout. It's it just makes you think about how many different ways are there to make noise on a baseball field. Right. So to get a message across uh, to the batter and the batter's ball. It always reminds me, Tim, of cheating in school. I always would think when I saw kids cheat, 
man, if you put as much energy into doing your work as you're doing to cheating, you'd be a really good student. <laughs> sort of like the same thing going on here. Yeah, exactly. All right, so we're going to go from that to another email. And just because this one's from an Astros fan, it felt like a, a natural transition, an Astros fan that, that is very familiar with what's going on. It's uh, Jamie, and he's actually from the UK, an Astros fan because extensive family in Houston. He says he has a question, but also an anecdote, and this is good. Obviously, I've seen all the rebuke towards the Astros given the sign-stealing scandal, as well as towards some fans, but I wanted to tell you how far-ranging I found this. I'm a university student in London. London. Pre-COVID, I was walking on campus in a Correa jersey when I started being yelled at. An American, I assume, student across the quad, started banging a trash can at me, yelling Houston asterisk. Thankfully, it was in jest, but still a rather weird encounter, even as far away as the UK. My question is about the Astros and the deadline, though. What sort of options could the Astros look to acquire to fill the dearth of solid relief options or hitting at center field? Also, is Tucker's continuing low batting average a concern? Let's start with Tucker. We are taping this Sunday, but he hit a three-run homer today in the Astros' victory over the Padres. And one of the concerns has been with him, not just his low batting average, but his performance with the runners in scoring position. So that's a good sign. Kyle Tucker is a really good hitter. He is one of their fine young talents, and I expect that he is going to have a good season still. It hasn't been good to this point. There's no question about it. His performance with men on base, runners in scoring position, has been not good at all. But when you talk to opposing managers about the Astros, they say that that lineup is pretty much seven deep. And then you get to the bottom half, or the bottom two guys, and it's not as dangerous. But seven is pretty impressive, and he is one of those seven. Now, that leads to the other question about center field. Center field is one of the black holes offensively. Miles Straw is the guy that they gave the job to. He's a fast defensive specialist who can do some things, but offense is not his calling card. And the Astros knew this. He was a little bit better in May or has been than he was in April. So in my view, if they have the other group going, and of course right now they've got Alvarez and Brantley on the IL, but when healthy, when they've got their offense pretty much together, they can afford to carry a mile straw and live with his good defense and occasional base stealing ability and subpar offense. The bullpen is the issue with this team. And the person who wrote the email asked, okay, who can they get? It's a little early for this kind of thing yet, but I've identified pretty much eight teams or so that are already out of contention or at least should understand that they're going to be out of contention. From that group, here are some relievers that I can at least throw out there as names that could be available. Michael Fulmer of the Tigers. I wrote about him a little bit last week. He has kind of been reborn as a reliever. Gregory Soto, also of the Tigers. Paul Fry of the Orioles. Rachel Iglesias of the Angels and Steve Ciszek. Iglesias has struggled, but certainly has the pedigree. Ian Kennedy of the Rangers. He's done a terrific job as their closer. Brad Hand of the Nationals, now that's a little bit of a reach. I don't know that the Nationals are going to break up their team, but things are not going so well. Yimmy Garcia of the Marlins, Richard Rodriguez, sub-1 ERA for the Pirates. Those are some of the names that I expect we'll hear. Not all of them, perhaps, but some of them. All right, and those, you know, we expect those questions will keep coming in. What does my team need? What can my team get at the deadline as we get closer and closer? Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, now ready for our first voicemail of the week. Ken, John from Maryland here. If we're going to expand the playoffs, I'd hate to see the situation last year where a one seed can fall to an eight seed in just a three-game series. Instead, I'd rather see more of a play-in concept. We could expand to six teams, but the higher seeds get advantages. For instance, seeds three and six would play, but to move on, seed three would only need to win once, while seed six would need to win twice. Same with seeds four and five, and seeds one and two would be automatically in. I think this sets the regular season incentives right, gives us more do-or-die games to start the playoffs. What do you think? John, good question, and a lot of people are still thinking or wondering what's going to happen when baseball does adopt expanded playoffs, if it does, in the next collective bargaining agreement. And it's certainly something the league wants to see happen. The union is not as enthusiastic. It's going to be a point of contention. The union's concern is, well, the more teams you get in the playoffs, the less competition perhaps you get from the teams because they know they can get in. The other side of that is you get more competition because more teams are trying to get in for the available spots. That's a debate for another time. But I want to take you back to the original proposal that Major League Baseball had about expanded playoffs. You mentioned going from five to six teams. Baseball actually wanted to go from five to seven. Now, the eight-team concept in each league, I should say, that we saw last year, forget about that. It's never coming back. Everyone knew that it was not ideal at all. It was simply a reaction to the circumstances of the shortened season due to COVID and We all know also that the problem with that format was it did not give any advantage to the team that won the division, the team that finished with the best record in the league. It was a mess in that regard. For one year, fine, whatever. We were just happy to have it. What baseball wanted was a seven-team in each league format. Best record in each league would get a bye to avoid the wildcard round. So that's good. That's real incentive there to finish with the best record in the league. Then you'd have the two other division winners and the wild card with the best record. Those three teams, two division winners, wild card with the best record. They would host all three games that they played in what would be the equivalent of the division series. So the bottom three wild cards do not get a first round home game. Once this 
is adopted, if it is adopted, I expect the format to look something like that. And that format, John, addresses your concerns about the lack of incentives for finishing with the best record, winning your division, which of course, really, in a 162-game season, you have to keep those carrots out there. You can't simply just say, okay, the playoffs are starting now, forget what happened. No, that's not the way this game is structured, and that's not the way I would expect it to go once and if expanded playoffs are adopted. Just one more topic that's going to be very talked about in the offseason with the CBA. All right, another email now. Uh, this one from Adam. Always enjoy your insights on the game, Ken, with off-speed and breaking pitches causing just as many, if not more, problems than high heat. How much would moving the mound back really help batters in this way? To me, I can see giving the ball an extra foot to break as an opportunity for pitchers to basically throw wiffle balls and continue to make batters look silly. Has the league considered any changes to the ball itself, such as lowering the laces to reduce the effects of the ever-increasing spin rate? Hmm. This is a complicated question. So, (laughs) first of all, moving the mound back. Let's start there. If that happened... It would only be one change I would expect of several designed to make things more of a level playing field. Now, one thing that Britt Garoli and I wrote about about a week and a half ago and it came to the fore really in a big way last week with Mike Schilt and Joe West and that whole issue with the foreign substances is the effect of the new properties of the ball on spin rate. And, of course, the foreign substances, more to the point with those guys, on what is happening with spin rate. You get the foreign substances out of the game, guess what? The spin drops for a lot of these pitchers. Also, and Baseball Prospectus has written about this, there is some thought that the new ball is contributing as well to increase spin rate. So if that's the case, maybe, yes, they do have to do something with the ball. And also, when we talk about these issues to boost offense, you've got to do something, in my opinion, and in the opinion of others, to reduce the size of the pitching staff, force pitchers to throw more often than they're throwing. And that would kind of incorporate as well a pitch clock, which would force them to throw more rapidly than they are throwing. What are we talking about? Preserving energy. If you have a pitch clock, you can't simply go all out and then 30 seconds later, 35 seconds later, however long you want to take, throw the ball again. You've got to do it within 20 seconds. If you have a smaller staff, a manager has fewer arms to rely on, and those pitchers have to go deeper in games rather than this all-out power assault that we're seeing every single night. So, again, what I'm saying is there has to be a combination of things that happen to help boost offense, and people, of course, have talked about the shift as well and whether you banned or not. These are all the topics that baseball should be addressing and looking into. All right, up next, voicemail again, uh, talking about the bunt. Hello, my name is Frank, and I have a question about bunting. Why is it that so many teams nowadays are opposed to the bunt? To me, if you get a crack at a guy in scoring position not once, but twice, that seems to make a lot of sense. Not to mention, doesn't it put a lot more pressure on a pitcher when they're pitching with a guy in scoring position? That certainly is the traditional thought process on bunting. And a lot of people still believe that to be the case in certain instances. In other instances, thanks in large part to the sabermetric movement, we've learned that 
bunting is not as effective a strategy as we kind of grew up thinking, those of us who are older. If you've watched Brian Kenny on MLB Now on MLB Network, he's railed against bunting for years. And the reason he's railing against it and continues to is because playing for one run, giving the defense a free out, statistically is not the right play. And statistically, a runner at first with no outs, there's a higher percentage of that runner scoring than when you have a runner on second with one out. It might sound counterintuitive in some respects, but that's the way the stats read. That's the, what the numbers are telling us. Same thing with first and second and no out versus second and third with one out. It's not the same. So same thing with runners on first and second and none out versus second and third with one out. You would think second and third, better chance of scoring, but that's not the way the numbers portray it to be. So it's a simple math equation as so much is in our sport right now. And in many cases, most cases, bunting is not recommended. Now, there are exceptions to that. There are exceptions all the time. Let's say someone is shifted beyond belief to the left side or the right side, doesn't matter. And the bunt can be an effective strategy there, actually for a base hit. And also with certain hitters, weaker hitters, yes, a bunt makes sense because they're not going to get the guy over anyway and they might strike out. So, okay, take your shot. But that's the long and short of it. I was on YouTube this week. I stumbled across a clip from 2013 MLB Network, and it was Brian Kenny and Harold Reynolds. And Brian Kenny, by the end of the clip, ends up ripping his dress shirt off, and he has a Stop the Bunt t-shirt underneath. And at that point, Harold was very much in favor of the bunt. I think Harold has come around over the years as well. But um, <laughs> it well, was a, Brian, a classic there. Tim Bryan is a zealot, as you know. Yes. And several members of our athletic team, Jason and I in particular, have to deal with his zealotry on a regular basis. <laughs> and we love Brian. He's a really smart guy. And actually, a lot of what he has said over the years has come to pass, including the opener. But that doesn't make him any less annoying. Absolutely. Kill the win, too. He, he got Kill that one. Kill the win. Across. He got that one, too. Yep. All right. Uh, another email. This one from Nick in Durham, North Carolina. I was in attendance. At the Cubs-Cardinals game you covered last week, and one thing that stood out was the relationship between Cardinals fans and Yadier Molina. You can almost feel the adoration in the air. In your experience covering games, do you think you could crown a champion of home crowd adoration? In other words, do you think that there is a player that is most beloved by the home fans in MLB? Nick, I'll have to break this down into current players and former players. So I'm a guy who basically spent a good portion of my career in Baltimore covering the Orioles through Ripken setting the consecutive games record. So for me, I don't know that there's ever been a player more beloved in his hometown than Cal Ripken Jr. Now, obviously there's competition for that honor, but he was kind of the perfect synthesis of a guy who grew up in the area, a guy who represented what the area thought of itself that blue-collar mentality. I don't know that it was necessarily true in all cases, but that is how Baltimore perceived itself. And then, of course, he accomplished amazing record-breaking things that, in many opinions, will never be touched. He was one. Tony Gwynn, certainly another. Same kind of thing. Hometown guy. Robin Yount in Milwaukee. Spent his whole career with the Brewers. Derek Jeter with the Yankees. George Brett in Kansas City. Kirby Puckett in Minnesota. Those guys all were extremely beloved, much like Yachty is today. Of the current players, I would maybe put Freddie Freeman in that regard. Hometown guy who's 
not hometown, homegrown guy who stuck with his franchise through some lean years and has been everything you'd want in a player. Trout certainly would be that same kind of profile. Altuve, Anthony Rizzo, and maybe now Fernando Tatis Jr. Because Tatis has signed that long-term deal with the Padres. He's not going anywhere. And the adoration for him will only grow. So what you saw with Yachty, it is unique. And it's one of the wonderful things about the game. But it's not exclusive to him and St. Louis. Yeah, it is special that it's St. Louis, though, too. Just because it's you know such a, a classic franchise and a, and a guy like Yachty. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, Nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. All right, another email. Uh, this one from Frank. As an Expos fan for 20 plus years living in Australia, our, our footprint just continues to grow, Ken. I still hold out hope for an Expos return one day. Two questions if possible. A, do you think the Expos will return full time or where do you think the league will eventually go for expansion? And what was your favorite memory of the Expos? And then he finishes it with, thanks for the great show and Bartolo for the Hall of Fame. (laughs) Very good. As for the Expos coming back or a team in Montreal coming back, that is the plan currently with the Rays to ultimately develop into this team that plays half its games in the Tampa Bay area, in a new ballpark, half its games in Montreal, in a new ballpark. I believe the year that would start would be 2028 when the lease of Tropicana Field expires. If I'm wrong, I apologize, but that is 
one thing that's under discussion. Whether it ever comes to fruition, I don't know. Now, as for my favorite memories of the Expos, I've actually got two. One doesn't really involve the team itself, it involves the city. And it was when I was 20 years old. So this is before I was a baseball writer, obviously. The All-Star Game was in Montreal. I really wanted to go to the All-Star Game, 1982. And my dad said, okay, you get two tickets for the game, you figure out a way to do that, and I'll take you to the game. The one thing, the one true skill I have in my life is an ability to procure tickets for difficult events. And I don't remember how exactly I did it, but I got two tickets for the All-Star Game. I've been proficient in many other ways that have nothing to do with my job for concerts over the years. And we went to the game in Montreal and had a great time. As for specific memories of the team itself, how can you ignore 1994? Because really, that was the turning point in the franchise's history and a heartbreaking turning point. Because what happened was a team that was 74 and 40 on a 105 win pace, its season effectively ended with a strike. And the team in that town was never the same from a business standpoint. A lot of fans were turned off by the strike, and understandably so. They lost a real chance for a World Series title. That team included two Hall of Famers, future Hall of Famers, Larry Walker and Pedro Martinez. Also had Moises Alou, Marquise Grissom. Ken Hill was a really good starter at that time. John Wetland was the closer. Mel Rojas was the setup man, and he was really good too. It was Felipe Alou's team. It was a team that really had captured the imagination of so many people in the sport, and it was taken away from them. Yeah, and hopefully they get it back. I have one. Uh, so I went to an Expos game when I was really, really little, like before you're a sports fan little uh, in the early 80s. And it was a doubleheader, Phillies Expos. And my family will never let me live this down because the seats were way up top in, uh, in Montreal. That's a big stadium. And I was so scared by the heights as a little, little kid that I was, I just couldn't handle being in the seat. So I stood back at the concourse for a while and eventually the family, my dad and mom decided that they couldn't, they couldn't like take turns going back and hanging out with me. And we all left in like the sixth inning of the first game. Of a, <laughs> it was Phillies Expos when both those rosters were loaded back then. Uh, I still hear about that one as uh, my, my one trip to Montreal. My parents actually met um, in the, the grounds of that stadium before it was built at the World's Fair, believe it or not, Ken. Oh, wow. So there's some more Expos memories. One more question, and it goes back to, you mentioned Bartolo in the Hall of Fame. This is Hall of Fame related. Hey, Ken, last week you discussed attempting to find the line between character and results in voting for the Hall of Fame. Do you believe that if a voter were to vote for Schilling, that they should also vote for Clemens and Bonds too? Some of the things that Schilling has said seem to be a lot worse than taking steroids like Bonds and Clemens. Thank you. That's from Jake. Jake, this kind of goes back to what I was saying last week. The Hall of Fame vote is an individual choice. It is subjective. It is up to each individual to determine what he or she believes are the right criteria or the right way to vote. So a person, a voter, could justify voting for Bonds and Clemens and not Schilling if that person says, okay, I see Schilling and what he has done as much worse than Bonds and Clemens, as you suggested. And that is certainly an opinion, a point of view that can be argued and defended and also picked apart. Same if you go the other way. I'm voting for Schilling and not Bonds and Clemens because 
I believe Schilling was a great pitcher, and I don't care what he has said, but I believe Bonds and Clemens cheated the game. That, too, is a defensible point of view. Now, I don't know how most voters determine it and how they go about making their decisions, but it's personal. And I know in my case, in recent years, I've chosen to vote for all of those guys for different reasons. Bonds and Clemens in large part because I believe other players who have used performance-enhancing drugs or had used them are in the Hall of Fame and that to draw this line arbitrarily between some who publicly are known to have used and those who have not been publicly exposed, that to me is difficult. That's the problem I have with excluding those guys. And I vote for Schilling because ultimately, as abhorrent as what he has said is in our real world situation, or in any situation for that matter, I believe that this is based on his performance on a baseball field and I'm kind of dismissing the character clause. Now, I believe I went into this last week. I'm torn about all this. I'm torn about whether to even continue voting because I hate making those kinds of judgments because they're judgments that a person who opposes them can say, no, Ken, that's ridiculous. How can you have a Hall of Fame with a person like Schilling? That's just wrong. We should not be electing guys like that. I know we elected Ty Cobb and other miscreants, but that is not what we should be doing in awarding the game's highest honor. Same thing with Bonds and Clements. You can say, hey, Ken, I know there are guys who use PEDs and there are, might have used them, but we know much more about Bonds and Clemens, and just because we know much more about them, that does not entitle them to the honor and this distinction that you're drawing, which is kind of specious. I get all of it. And the problem you, that I have, at least, with the Hall of Fame vote is I never feel good about the way I'm voting with these guys. I always see the other side, and it kind of tortures me. So I haven't made a decision on what I'm going to do. And my own wife tells me, ah, stop being a drama queen, just vote. <laughs> and <laughs> there's a certain validity to that. But it's really difficult. And it's really difficult when as a columnist or a journalist, you have to defend your positions and you have to be transparent about them and honest about them. And you do that in your work. And yet when you do it with the Hall of Fame, you feel like you just can't make the right choice. That's tough. And that's where I am with it. You being torn just speaks to how important it is to you, I think, which is um, which is what we want from, from all the baseball writers that think about these things. Um, all right, great questions again this week. We would love a few more voicemails next week. So get on the phone, call 646-543-7072. You can also email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. And Ken, the Red Sox and Yankees, I can't believe they haven't played yet. I feel like there's usually, they get one of those series in, in April, either in New York or in Boston. This year, waiting till June, but you're going to be there next week for Yankees-Red Sox. I will be, yes. And it is odd, Tim, you're right. It's quirk of the schedule. I believe by then the Yankees and Rays will have played three times, certainly multiple times. So it's the way the schedule works this year. Yankees, Red Sox, I did not expect to be especially compelling this season because I did not expect the Red Sox to be very good. Turns out the Red Sox are pretty good and the Yankees are kind of a mystery. They go up, they go down. So it'll be a very interesting series, no doubt. The Yankees have Tampa Bay first this week, so it's a big week for them coming up. 
Yeah, they could make a real move if they come out and, and battle. And, and all three of those teams, it, it just feels like it's going to be a lot of fun this summer. All right, keep it locked on the Athletic Baseball Show all week long. Ken's actually going to be back tomorrow uh, along with Jason Stark and Doug Glanville and Britt Giroli. That's a roundtable. We're looking at the first two months of the season and what we've learned. So check that one out on Starkville. And then it's Hunter Pence and Grant Brisby on Thursday. And then finally on Friday, Keith Law and Derek Van Riper. If you want to read all of the great writers you just heard and all the other great writers and all the other sports, join The Athletic for just $3.99 per month. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. Ken, have a great week. You too, Tim. Thank you. And have a great week to everyone else out there. We'll talk to you again next month.